We're so excited for this week's episode of the Midnight Founders Podcast with myself, AJ, and Jake. Uh, we're super excited to welcome to the show this week, Wade Rasmussen. And if you don't know that name, you will soon. He is the COO and co-founder at Dirty Dough. And a lot of you are becoming familiar with that company as the opposite of crumble cookies. They uh, have, ha- have coined the phrase hashtag Utah cookie wars in billboards all along the freeways. They've turned that lawsuit into 3x revenues. They're trying to hire the right people. They're working on the business as, as opposed to in the business. And they've created these operational efficiencies that are helping set themselves apart as the leading cookie company. Additionally, he talks a little bit about how they're scaling their business through franchising, which is a unique model, not to other companies in the food space, but unique to who we've had on the podcast thus far. And then ultimately that their mission goes way beyond cookies. In fact, helping kids and other folks with mental challenges and helping them get over those things. So super excited to have you join us this week. Welcome to the Midnight Founders Podcast. Here we go. We are here with Wade Rasmussen from Dirty Dough, co-founder with Ben and Maxwell, right? And um, if you haven't been following what's going on with cookies right now, I don't know where you've been because it is all over the internet and LinkedIn and everywhere you can see on the freeway, on the on billboard. I, I was going to say on I-15. <laughs> yeah, it's everywhere. So yeah. Wade, thanks for coming to the Midnight Founders podcast here with, with uh, Jake and myself, and we're super excited to have you. Thanks so much. This is great. So tell us, hashtag cookie wars, what is going on? Give us the lowdown. Yeah. So we were actually pretty surprised about a month and a half, two months ago, we received communication from Crumble Cookies, which is right now the big name in cookies. Um, really it wasn't a cease and desist. It didn't really have any formal demands. All it said is that, Hey, we're, we're informing you that your, um, your branding, your logo, um, is too close to ours. So they were making a case of uh, trademark infringement. They had a couple other small claims as well, saying that they had employees coming from, you know, their company over to ours, you know, giving industry secrets and, and, uh, you know, a few other small things. But the main thing was that our our branding was too close to theirs. We ended up responding any way we could. Um, we sent over multiple different types of communication. They never responded back. So we thought to ourselves, oh, they're probably doing something where they're trying to either, I don't know, maybe intimidate us, maybe try and scare franchisees away from working with us. Um, but ultimately we ended up just kind of forgetting about it because we never heard anything back after we tried to communicate. And then um, before you know it, we see a, a KSL, KSL featured article. Um, that says Crumble is suing two different cookie companies here in the state of Utah, um, us, Dirty Dough, and Crave Cookies um, for trademark infringement is is really kind of the main charge. And, um, you know, of course, they were featured articles on KSL, meaning they were paid for um, by Crumble. And uh, so we were really surprised to see that. And we thought, again, you know, maybe it's a PR thing. So we had our attorneys reach out to them and still no response, didn't hear anything back from them. And so we thought to ourselves, ah, who knows? But essentially, it, um, we wanted to be very open about it with the public. We wanted to show people that we've done nothing wrong. We don't feel like we have done any sort of trademark infringement. In fact, our entire strategy is we've wanted our branding to be very distinctly different from any of the other cookie concepts out there. That's why we went with a very distinct Tiffany blue color. Um, the, the name Dirty Dough is just very different from most of the other cookies. We don't even have cookies in the title of the company, um, just to remain different. But essentially, we, um, we just continued as is. But my partner, Bennett Maxwell, ended up posting on his LinkedIn. He put up a copy of the letter 
because after they had a few articles published on KSL, we wanted to make sure the public knew that, hey, we're, we're totally comfortable with this. We're not worried. So he posted that, ended up tagging the owners of Crumble and ended up basically saying, you know, how can you trademark cookies? A cookie is a cookie. I mean, are you going to sue your grandma for using sprinkles on cookies? Are you going to uh, go to every single house or every single place that does their own little catering gig with cookies? And Chocolate and, chip and, cookie is the oldest thing in time, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and try and take those people down. So um, it's just not really something, you know, how many burger places and pizza places are there? It's, it's just kind of a staple food. So what we decided to do was take advantage of the publicity because we noticed a lot of people started commenting on Bennett's LinkedIn post and a lot of people were following the story. So we decided to capitalize on that and well, say, yeah, uh, really quick. Wait, was it in favor or against what was happening? So it was what actually was uh, a lot of people were really coming down hard on Crumble. In fact, what we found is about 90 to 95 percent of the comments that were on Bennett's LinkedIn post and on a lot of the online articles that were published were actually very negative towards Crumble, which I think is pretty common when a very large company that's doing a billion dollars plus in revenue attacks a startup. Uh, you know, someone who's very, very small, almost minute or almost non-existent compared to them. And so everybody kind of came out and said, you know, people used examples of other companies, large corporations suing small ones, but basically said, this, this is terrible. You know, we saw all sorts of comments of people saying, you know what, there's a crumble right across the street. Uh, from where I live, but I'm never going back there again. I'm going to go to either Dirty Dough or Crave. And so uh, what we saw in our stores is our sales almost tripled in a matter of a week um, in the vineyard store. And these are stores that had just opened. Yeah, one month. The vineyard store has been open for one month and our sales uh, um, just about tripled. Um, tripled on the weekends and in the weekdays doubled. Um, and then we just opened a store in Spanish Fork and you you can't even find it on apple maps yet you can't really find it on google maps yet they didn't even have an open sign in their stores and they're already doing two thousand dollars of revenue a day and uh, it's because we've gotten so much exposure the other big result we've seen is just through the roof franchise inquiries so a lot of people didn't even know that dirty dough exists they didn't even know about the model that we're doing how we're changing up the cookie industry and and really shaking up the industry and doing it a different way um, and so once people saw that, they went to our website, checked us out, and uh, we have one full-time sales rep and two part-time sales reps, and they're booked out for the next three weeks uh, taking uh, franchise inquiry calls. Incredible. Yeah. And, and so really it came down to we, we, we're not trying to be aggressive towards Crumble. Uh, we're not trying to attack them. We're not trying to take them down. The honest truth is we've never really looked at Crumble as a true competitor of ours because they're so big that, I mean, they're not really a true competitor. Our true competitors are the smaller guys trying to be like Crumble, um, you know, and, and their valuation was 1.3 billion or something oh, yeah. just well, recently I mean, or two or something. They're doing like over a billion in revenue every year. And so we look at Crumble a little bit more like the Mrs. Fields cookies that's been around for 50 plus years. Insomnia cookies has been around for 20 years. And we have tremendous, uh, you know, respect for what Crumble has done. They've done amazing things. And we think they have a fantastic model, fantastic branding. We think they're great. Um, and so to be honest, we've never really looked at them as, hey, we got to go beat them or we got to go compete with them. We've really looked at people that are, you know, more along our size as, hey, we got to go beat those guys. And we, we want to go, uh, you know, just make a splash of our own in the market. 
And so when we started opening the vineyard store and we see all these crumble billboards going up all over I-15, we think to ourselves, hmm, that's odd. We've never seen billboards up and down I-15. And all of a sudden we open our first store and there they are. Maybe it's linked to us, maybe it's not. We kind of feel like it is. But with that being said, we felt like one of the best ways we could send a statement to the public that, hey, we're not afraid is to do some billboards of our own. And so when the when the lawsuit came out and it went you know pretty public, uh, we met with the marketing team and said, you know, hey, hey, what can we do? What should we not do? We even counseled with our lawyer and said, hey, what what should we and should not do? We wanted to make sure we weren't playing dirty. We want to make sure people know that we're not trying to be aggressive. It's all in good fun, just a good you know good natured competitive spirit. Um, but we loved the hashtag Utah Cookie Wars because it's just so central here to Utah. It's one of the biggest markets for desserts and sweets and sugar. And so we wanted to make it really, really fun. And what we feel like has happened is, you know, there's the the old saying that if the level of the water rises, all the boats on the tide rise as well, big or small. Obviously, Crumble's a really big boat. Ourselves, Crave, some of the others are really small, but it's brought a lot more attention to the cookie industry. So people are probably, I would assume, at some of the other stores, maybe not Crumble, I don't know, but uh, are buying a lot more cookies. And uh, it's just brought a lot more attention to the industry. So we feel like it's been an awesome thing. And we've come up with these little clever sayings like, cookie's so good, you have to sue. And, um, you know, another one is let your taste buds be the judge and, and different things like that. Just trying to play <laughs> off the whole, the whole spin off of, you know, what can you connect uh, cookies to being sued? And, and so we're trying to make it all in good we fun. We don't crumble with the competition. Yeah, we like don't crumble them. with the competition. Yeah. And, and so we're just trying to make it all in all in good fun and bring some attention to it. And the response has been crazy. Like I said, sales are up, franchise increase are up. And then the even the nationwide attention has been astounding too. I've had so many people come to me and say, wow, I just saw the main uh, news network in, in Denver picked you up. There's uh, news stations in California that are picking you up. They're, they're all over the place about these Utah cookie wars and uh, how you know this little small company is pushing back against a billion dollar company. And so we feel like it's given us a lot of good recognition that we're, we're scrappy and we're going to grow. So is Vineyard your first location? The first location in Utah. So there's one location down in Tempe, Arizona. That's the original location. And we didn't create that location. In fact, if you go to Tempe, Arizona, it still has the old branding, um, which the old colors were orange. Um, just the font and the logo, everything is different. That's what uh, the original creator of Dirty Dough uh, his name's Tyler Peary, and he was a student down at ASU. He created Dirty Dough. He started it out of his college apartment and did delivery only and was so was successful enough to get into a brick-and-mortar store and found soon thereafter that that wasn't the path he wanted to pursue. And that was when my partner, Bennett Maxwell, came in, purchased Dirty Dough from him um, and wasn't really sure if he was going to franchise it or do corporate stores. And so we actually didn't even get licensed to franchise until this last November. Um, but we've been spending the last year or so, you know, getting the model ready and recruiting a corporate team, uh, getting licensed to franchise. It's, it's quite the process. But um, the, the store in Vineyard is the first true store that the current owners and the current management has opened um, and has operated. And how many franchises have been sold to date? So since? we we've sold a little over a hundred franchises, and then we have uh, funding for fifteen corporate stores. So right now in the pipeline, we have about hundred and twenty stores signed, funded, ready to go, 
And we have, like I said, just a huge pipeline. We have more people inquiring about franchising with us than there's ever been. So Wade, how did you get into this? What is your background and where did you start this journey? And give us some of that story. So I, um, uh, I went to Utah State University. Yes. Um, yes. Go Aggies. Aggies all the way. Hey, hey, hey. You betcha. Um, and so I went to Utah State, got my bachelor's degree in marketing. Um, I was really deep into another uh, Utah-centered industry, which is the door-to-door industry, summer sales, um, and was actually a, a territory partner in, in the company I was with and was with them for about six years. And at that time, kind of had a decision to make whether I wanted to continue in that industry, find something else, or uh, join the corporate world. And, and so I actually I had a really good offer from uh, Geneva Rock Concrete um, and uh, to be a sales rep there. And that's obviously my background is I did marketing, I did sales for a long time. And so I joined the corporate world, great company, Geneva Rock is amazing. I just quickly found out that the corporate life is not for me. And I got so used to eating what I kill, building my own thing, going out and making it happen and not having any limitations that I wanted to get back into that world. So I, I was kind of looking around at, you know, what options are out there. And um, originally I looked at Dirty Dough and wasn't sure exactly how involved I wanted to be. I thought maybe I'll just do a couple franchises on the side, but I was connected to my, my now partner, Bennett, um, through uh, Josh Steele, who is going to be running all of our production at our, at our production facility. He connected me with him and I thought, yeah, maybe I'll just do some franchises and that'll be a little bit of a side hustle for me. But uh, long story short, I ended up just knocking out the process of getting franchises going before they had even developing, developed that, that Bennett came back to me and said, well, how would you feel about being a, a partner and uh, buying in and, and you know being full time? And I jumped at the opportunity. Um, and so I ended up buying in as a partner. And so I'm a minority owner, Bennett's the majority owner. But uh, definitely glad I did it when I did, because at this point, there wouldn't be the opportunity for me to buy in anymore. Well done. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's incredible. So um, I think I know a little bit, but would love to know more about how you guys are differentiating. So. Yeah. Um, so the main thing is, is we want to, I mean, I mean, in two ways, because in a franchise model, you look at it from two different perspectives. One is the customer perspective. What did they experience when they walk in a store? And one is the franchisee perspective is what is the franchisee experiencing? Um, how are they making money? What does their life look like after they open a franchise? Is it taken over by the store? Um, is it relatively easy to manage? And so we wanted to improve both of those experiences. Uh, number one for the customer, we wanted to make sure that we were offering a brand that was just distinctly different from everything. Um, that's why we went with the unique uh, branding with the Tiffany Blue. But more importantly, the, uh, the product offering, the cookies, we wanted to do cookies that were um, stuffed cookies that have fillings that have multi cookie dough layers. And so we can do cookies that are regular cookies, two layered cookies, three layered cookies, a cookie with filling, a two layered cookie with filling. And so there's just no end to the combinations of cookies we can do. And other companies will do filled cookies sometimes, but they're incredibly difficult to do by hand because to do it by hand, you have to roll the cookie dough out, put the filling in the middle, reseal the cookie dough. And if you have any cracks or thin spots, a lot of times that's going to break in the oven. It's going to spill out and you're going to have a lot of waste. So they can do the filled cookies. They just can't put as much filling so they don't look nearly as good when you open them up. And uh, you'll just have a lot more waste. So the profit margins go down. Um, 
we uh, we produce, and this is getting a little bit more into the franchisee experience, is we produce all of our cookie dough in a warehouse. And so we have centralized commissary kitchens is what we refer to them as. And we mass produce the cookie dough because the most labor intensive part um, of any of these cookie shops is mixing the dough, balling the dough by hand, putting it all together. And we found that in most of these cookie shops, pretty much all of them, once they've gone to all that work, more than off, more often uh, than not, they put those cookie dough balls into a freezer. And that's where they stay good, a fridge or a freezer. And then they pull them back out when they're ready to cook them. Um, and so for our model, we figured, hey, if the cookie starts at the same spot anyway, if it comes out of a freezer and goes into an oven and is baked fresh for the customer, why not do all of the labor intensive steps in a commissary kitchen and skip all those steps for the franchisees? So what we found is we've gotten uh, mixers, you know, that'll do a few hundred pounds of cookie dough at a time. We use balling machines, um, you know, that we've ordered from overseas and uh, they'll ball out 60 cookie dough balls a minute. They're just really, really expensive machines. And uh, they, they require quite a bit of maintenance and cleaning and everything. And so we've ordered several of those and we're gonna mass produce these cookie dough balls. And so that enables us to do all these crazy combinations where you break the cookies open and there's two and three layered and they're stuffed with filling and they have a full ounce compared to a quarter of an ounce. Um, but the biggest thing is it eliminates quite a bit of the labor in the store. So for our franchisees, what we've seen, and this is what I've personally seen in the vineyard store, is compared to most cookie models, we've been able to reduce the labor by about 60 to 70%. And as we continue to streamline and train the employees, it'll get to the point where we get it up to around 70 to 80%. And so we're just saving massive amounts of money on the labor in the store. And so it's increasing our profit margins by quite a bit. The other big thing is because corporate is now ordering all the raw goods for the cookies, like the flour and the sugar and the eggs, we're able to order directly from wholesale suppliers instead of third-party companies and eliminate the markups and get uh, discounts based on volume. And so it's uh, not only a much more profitable model for the franchisees, but it's also much easier to run because now rather than needing 20 or 30 or 40 people on payroll, um, we only need 10 or 12. In fact, in Vineyard, I think we have about 10 employees on payroll and we only need between two employees on the low end and maybe five on five or six on the high end. So it's product soup. I mean, there's some great uniqueness in the product. It sounds like yeah, with the triple layer and, and those sorts of things. And then there's some great operational efficiencies as well. Absolutely. At the end, at the end of the day, a cookie is a cookie. And uh, if you're like me, I, by I the love, way, they're delicious. <laughs> Jake, have you had? Some I haven't tried them yet. We gotta have. We, we gotta, gotta get you a box. Wait, you yeah. didn't bring cookies with us? I know. I don't know why Come I didn't on, bring them today. I know. Cookies. Here. I'm trying not it's to okay, eat them I myself. Know how to get to <laughs> they wouldn't have made the car trip <laughs> you over. Do. But uh, no, the, I mean the, the cookies are awesome. The cookies are absolutely phenomenal, and the reviews we've got are just mind blowing. How much positive? Uh, how many positive reviews we've had? I think we've had 200 Google reviews in the vineyard store so far, and we have a 4.8 out of five stars and really, really good feedback thus far. And we have awesome chefs and bakers that are producing the recipes and they really are fantastic. Um, What's your favorite cookie, your favorite flavor? Um, I like the cookie butter one. It's, it's Biscoff. So it's just like a brown sugar cookie base with Biscoff in the middle and on top. And it's one of the more simple ones, but it is so good. I love it. Mm. Oh, my goodness. We almost uh, need to take a break and go get one of those right now. <laughs> the raspberry toaster tart one's good, too, and that's one of those very yeah, iconic. I've been invited to a few, you know, Good Things Utah, Studio 5, a few of those, and 
that's always the one they want me to break open in front of the camera and show all the <laughs> raspberry filling coming out because it really it's is impactful. Oh, yeah. And you see some of the other cookie concepts that you know, a lot of their marketing will show quite a bit of filling. Um, but when you buy it from their store and you break it open, there's really not much in there because, again, it's tough to do it. But our, our cookies definitely, you break them open and there's, there's a decent amount of filling. Not too much, but, you know, enough. You're controlling that, that <laughs> customer experience too, though, by doing it kind of in-house. Um, I would imagine that you're, uh, with the explosive growth you've got, that um, managing that from a production side is going to be a really difficult kind of transition. Um, yeah, so what? how many production facilities do you have nationwide or So currently planned? we just, yeah, we just have the one. Um, and we have several different strategies as we expand. And um, I mean, there definitely is in our minds a, a pretty significant barrier to entry just because um, most of these cookie shops that start off, they start off pretty low cost. And uh, they don't do this model because it costs millions of dollars to get up and going. Um, and that's what we've seen is as we've developed this warehouse, we originally signed on a warehouse space that was about 10,000 square feet. And we outgrew that quicker than we could have ever possibly imagined. And so we're already, we've signed a, a new lease on a location that will immediately take 16,000 square feet. We'll assume another 16,000 in April, and then an option possibly to get another 16,000, which we hope we can get um, about a year later. So that'll get us up to about 50,000 square feet. So you're setting yourself up for expansion opportunities right now. Exactly. In fact, the lease we found was, I mean, it was too good to be true um, because it gave us a perfect timeline um, for what we'll need. Don't say where it is. <laughs> I won't. I won't mention that. We'll have uh, people coming for it. But uh, basically, we um, that that warehouse should get us to about 200 plus locations. Um, but we saw that it was very very uh, key that we get experts in their field in both production and shipping. Because in our model, producing the dough and delivering it to the franchisees in a timely manner is really at the, that's the beating heart of the, the whole operation. And so that's why we hired someone that um, is over production, that's been doing it for years, that's been doing it in the food space, has, uh, you know, run production for companies that are doing closer to 100 million in gross sales. Um, and so this has been really a, a cakewalk for him so far. And then for the shipping and logistics, uh, we hired a guy's name is Ivan Souza, um, and uh, he built his own shipping and logistics company, ended up selling that, and he's been doing a lot of consulting for the last six or seven years. And um, he's building out all of our shipping, but the best thing about um, him is he has a really great network. So if we ever find ourselves in a bit of a pinch or if we don't have enough trucks for whatever reason or one breaks down, he's got an endless network of, you know, connections in the shipping world where we can get our product out extremely quick. In fact, one of the things that we're going to do as we expand is looking in look is we'll look into getting into uh, co-packing facilities that will produce our product and deliver it. And they'll use the exact same equipment, the exact same suppliers, and uh, just a way to supplement some of the supply as we continue to build out those warehouses. But more likely than not, our plan is to build out probably four to five of these locations because we never want to deliver further than probably about 10 to 12 hours away just to make sure that we're um, getting the dough out. But then obviously the, the challenge becomes accurately predicting how much cookie dough each location is going to need. Right. Um, and so that'll be the fun aspect of it for us. But the way we're doing that is we're going to hire a data analytics company 
they'll take a look at our data and uh, help us accurately predict it. But that'll be the challenge on the corporate side. We have um, a good content for you that way, by the way. That would be There's awesome. There's a company in the railroad portfolio called Analytics Odyssey, and they would be perfect for that. Awesome. Yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, the more help we can get, the the better. We all, we obviously want as many eyes on it as we can. But, uh, yeah, the, the best thing about it is um, in our model, because we produce it, like you said, it has a built-in quality control system and waste management system. So the franchisees are never going to receive cookie dough that has not been uh, tested, like taste tested for quality control. It's going to be the exact same shape, the exact same weight every single time. There's going to be virtually no waste from a mixing and balling standpoint, which is one of the area, the biggest areas of waste in a traditional model. But as we deliver it out to all of these different various locations, um, we'll have things set up where stores can share cookie dough with each other if they have too much of one and not enough of the other. And we'll also be able to set up uh, cold storage facilities, you know, rent space in cold storage in some of the bigger markets, just in case we want to send out a little bit of extra. Um, and so we've, we've got a lot of awesome things in the works that will essentially make it just 10 times easier for our franchisees to run one of these shops compared to any of the other traditional cookie models. Whenever my wife is making cookies, uh, <laughs> that's when she's mixing and balling cookies. That's when most of the cookie dough disappears. Gone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I hope you get into some sort of frozen <laughs> cookie dough of uh, vein of some sort. Because How long that, does it last? That would be cool. Yeah. yeah so we've we've taste test we've we've done taste testing. Um, what we do is we leave the cookie dough in the freezer um, for certain amounts of time. We'll pull it back out. We'll bake it, and then we'll bake one that we made that day, and we'll have people blindly taste test it. And we've gone all the way up to six months, and they can't tell the difference. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. They can't tell the well, difference. Well, what I thought was interesting is we we you know because they're big cookies, right? So you can't really eat them all in one setting. So we yeah, push shouldn't. Them we shouldn't you that's can. right i could if i wanted to but we, that's right that's right we shouldn't thank you jake he knows me too well yeah but we put them in the freezer and we pull them out three or four days later and actually frozen mm -hmm. or at least very cold they're almost even better it was amazing and i wasn't expecting that because usually they go hard they go brittle they they you know they taste freezer burn or whatever these were great i was and, impressed and that's the thing is i i'm not a baker i've had no formal training as a baker um and so my assumption is that the fillings help keep the moisture in quite a bit. I mean, I don't know if that's oh, the that exact makes sense. reason. That makes but sense. what we found is that um, the cookies hold up really, really well overnight. And I'll, I'll take, I take cookies home way too often and just have them in my house and um, I'll eat them the next day. And to me, they're, like you said, almost even better the next day um, eating them compared to eating them hot because sometimes some of those fillings are a little warm and it's just, preference if you like a warm filling versus more of a room temperature and i think i prefer more of a room temperature um i guess depending on the filling but they hold up really well they freeze really well and the most important thing is when they're in cookie dough form uh, because we're sending them out in the sealed bags within the boxes they store really well and we're working on getting some of those cookie dough balls up to a year so we can taste test them at a year six months is the longest we've done but we should never have any franchisees that are keeping them in their freezer for more than six months so Wade, what is you and Bennett's biggest, I mean, you're, you're growing this huge franchise system from nothing, right? Yeah. What is your biggest stress right now or your biggest concern about success? I would say just uh, really getting more stores open. Um, that's the biggest thing right now is getting more stores open, getting them 
moving, um, you know, because obviously the, the stores that are opening now, which we've opened Vineyard and Spanish Fork, we're going to open Pleasant. Um, I was going to say Pleasant Grove is really soon, right? Pleasant Grove should be next week. St. George could also be next week. And then Saratoga Springs will be in about two weeks. And uh, then we'll probably have about a month gap or so before we open more. But we're just now starting construction on about five or six more. And, uh, you know, a few in Salt Lake, a few in Utah County, a few in Arizona. Um, I would say that the most difficult thing now is just getting, you know, enough people on the corporate team to get those build outs done. Um, because we're trying to hire people on the corporate team that we want to be around for a long, long time. And uh, we want to make sure they're the right fit. And, um, you know, this first group of initial franchisees, part of them signing on is there was an expectation or maybe kind of an unsaid, unspoken expectation that we would help them quite a bit, which we are. We're providing a lot of support. But we, you know, obviously need to make sure there's a culture there of, in a traditional franchise, the franchisees do every single step. They pay a franchise fee and a royalty for the model, the brand, the recipes and everything. And so we just want to make sure that we are implementing that. But to be honest, that's really not that hard. I think the biggest thing is we're just trying to keep up with the momentum. There's so much momentum, so many franchise inquiries coming in. So many of the franchisees are, are really hustling to get their stores open. So it's all good things. It's just a busy time. Yeah, my uh, my wife's family, she grew up in a house uh, where they had three Pop Murphy's franchises. Okay. So I didn't I've, know that. Yeah. Yeah, so her parents have owned uh, a couple Pop Murphy's or three Pop Murphy's restaurants for uh, a long, long time. They bought one more since I joined the family. So that's why ago. every Friday night's Papa Murphy's. Papa night. Murphy's <laughs> pizza. <laughs> the McCarg house. house, yeah. Got uh, it. Too yeah. bad they're up in northern Utah. So <laughs> the rest of the family gets Papa Murphy's <laughs> all the time. Help you. We have to like steal them every time we go up there. But uh, so I have spent plenty of time around those huge Hobart machines, like the mixing machines that you're talking about. And rolling out the dough in the morning and, and helping them in their busy season. So, so I think your model's awesome where you're, you're doing that on the corporate side. I would love Pop Murphy's to do that so that we don't have to roll dough in the morning anymore. Much less complicated to yeah. have it all just done, right? Well, and, and the big thing about it is even if our model is so much more simple and easier to run, there's still a learning curve there. Uh, you're still dealing with people people that have to learn the system and how to do the cookies themselves. And in these cookie shops, the majority of the employees are high school and college kids, which uh, we have awesome employees, absolutely fantastic. But at the end of the, at the end of the day, to me, it's my business to them. It's just a job. And so to make sure that the quality is there, the cookies are being decorated correctly. Everything is going smooth. It still takes a few weeks to be honest. Some of these other cookie concepts, I'm like, man, I cannot even imagine what a headache it is to get that thing up and running because you factor in all the mixing, all the baking, all the balling, all the quality control that's involved. And in ours, um, so I personally own the vineyard store. Like I said, I was planning on being a franchisee, ended up buying on the corporate end, but uh, I was going to buy, I was going to do three franchises. I decided to do two and I took the money from one and used that as my buy-in. But essentially um, in the vineyard store, I was there almost every day for the first two or three weeks. The last three weeks, I haven't been in there really at all. I think maybe twice for about 20 minutes each. And other than that, I haven't gone in because now they know what they're doing. It's up to speed. They're moving. And uh, so that was, you know, at first, initially, it was my first time opening a franchise. It was all of our first time at Dirty Dough really opening a store. But now that we have the process built out a little bit and we've hired the, the you know, the key people on the corporate team to implement that, that process, it's 
much, much smoother. Uh, we've seen on Spanish and will be a lot smoother on these others too. So you've talked about you're so busy, you guys are running, just trying to keep up and everything. This is the Midnight Founders podcast, right? So yeah. Um, Wade, I guess my next question to you and, you know, vicariously Bennett as well, who I'm sure is putting in equal amounts of time is what makes you a midnight founder? What does that mean to you? And what are the similarities between what you're doing and, and that title right there? Well, the, uh, when I found out what the name of the podcast was, I was like, oh my gosh, how appropriate. I've never gone to sleep before midnight since we opened, <laughs> you know, <laughs> since we, since I got involved with Dirty Dough. And it really is, you're just burning both ends of the candle. And especially in a startup, you're, you're a little bit of everything. You're, you're doing a little bit of marketing, a little bit of the sales, a little bit of the ops, and, and uh, you're just involved in every aspect of the, of the business. And it's a grind. And one of the biggest uh, um, things that, I don't know, I guess I took away from some of the classes I had in college, my summer sales experience, all these experiences where you're really eating what you kill and you're 100% commission is that uh, if you want to earn more money, if you want to own your own business, then you got to put in your time and you got to grind. And I think a lot of people when they open a business don't realize how much of a grind that truly is. And so myself, my partner Bennett, a lot of the members of the corporate team were putting in 50, 60, sometimes 70 hour weeks. And a lot of times it, it doesn't stop because I'll finish all my corporate responsibilities and run into my store and vineyard and they're overloaded. So I'll help a little bit there, but, um, there's just always something to be working on. And so that's the trick too, is, um, you have to find a good balance between work and, and home life and, and everything else. Um, can't be too overloaded, but you know, there's a lot of quotes out there, um, that say that the most successful people are the people who don't have balance in their life and the people who get so incredibly obsessed with being successful, making their business successful, that they really don't have that balance. And uh, the Midnight Podcast, I mean, I can, I can see that showing through that, um, you know, my ultimate goal is I, feel, I do feel like maybe there's a little bit of imbalance in my life and I'm putting a lot of time into this project, but it's going to pay off big time. And uh, we'll get to the point where I have more freedom than I ever have or probably ever should have, but it'll be because of the, uh, you know, the amount of time I put in now. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I got a notification on my watch the other day that was telling me that my optimal bedtime was 1218. And I was like, mm. <laughs> midnight founder over the course of the, yeah, it's just slow. I something. think my watch has just given up. It's like, you should go to bed at 10, but yeah. uh, your optimal bedtime is now 1230. It just goes off at 11. Like, <laughs> give up. No, no, yeah, whatever. Just do your yes. thing. Just go to bed when you're going to go to bed, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. I, I love what you're saying though. I think, uh, finding that balance is key, but you know, balance doesn't necessarily mean that you have balance every single day. It's that it kind of equalizes over time. And some days are tough as an entrepreneur. Some days you're up all night trying to figure it out and, and that's just the way it goes. Well, and, and that's, you know, too, I was, I was having a conversation with someone the other day that was talking a little bit about, you know, they want to start their own business, but they want the consistency um, that the corporate life brings and having a salary and having benefits. You don't typically get both. You, you, you got to choose one or the other. You really can't get both. And, uh, you know, one of the people talking about balance um, that I'm now remembering is David Goggins, the Navy SEAL who uh, he holds the oh, world yeah. record for pull-ups. He's, Love that guy. He's a super athlete now. Yeah. I mean, he does all these insane triathlons and, and super marathons and all these different things. And he, he is just well known for talking about his mental toughness and his mindset and uh, he talks about how, 
everyone says you need to have balance in your life. And he's like, those people never accomplish anything special. Those are the people that they, they stay in their lane, they do their thing and, and they really just kind of go through life. And I, I personally, I'm, I'm a little bit like, that's a little bit harsh. He just says it flat out. Yeah. Right? He just says it flat out. And I'm like, dude, you, you're a super athlete. You hold world records. Like, I don't know that I ever need he's to earn the right to say that. Yeah, exactly. He's been a Navy SEAL. He's, he's done it all. And, and, you know, all the, you know, taking everything to the extreme. I don't know that I'll ever need to do that to be fully happy. But um, when it comes to developing a nationwide brand, a nationwide chain, a uh, nationwide business, it it's pretty intense sometimes, and it takes a lot of work. But honestly, I, I think it's a ton of fun. I think it's awesome. And what I found is putting in 60 or 70 work, you know, hours a week into Dirty Dough compared to 40 hours a week into the corporate job I had before, I have a lot more energy at the end of the day doing 70 hours a week into Dirty Dough because it's something I'm passionate about. So it makes the work seem a lot more fun. Okay, Wade, so you've, you've had a lot of great insights here, um, but my question to you would be, you know, what advice would you give entrepreneurs just starting out, whether it's a franchise system or not, you know, what, what have you learned that would be helpful for those listening to the podcast? Um, I think, uh, number one, um, you have to approach it with a certain level of toughness, knowing that things are going to go wrong, knowing that you're not going to have it figured out right off the bat. Um, and, um, I would say the main key attitude is you need to be resourceful. Um, you need to be good at solving problems, finding answers to questions. Myself and my partner, Bennett, we didn't have any kind of a background in the food industry. Uh, no background in baking. Wow. You're kidding. Yeah. Nothing. That's amazing. I've never, I've never even worked in a a fast food chain or anything, not even in high school. Um, Bennett hasn't either, but we know how to go find answers to questions. We know how to recruit members of the corporate team. Uh, we know how to sell, we know how to work hard. And if you can do those things, you really can create anything. I mean, if we're doing cookies right now, um, and we've had as good of a response as we've had and sold as many franchises and that many people believe in the concept and the model we built, then it means we've done something right. And uh, even though there's still a long ways to go and ways to improve, um, the biggest key for us is to be, to be resourceful. And uh, if you don't know how to do it, go recruit someone who knows how to do it. And if you don't know how to implement a process, go recruit someone that knows how to implement a process. And if you need extra help, go get an advisory panel, which we did. Um, go get people that are willing to, uh, you know, givers that are willing to share and give you advice along the way. Um, and uh, that's been the biggest key for us is just being resourceful, finding answers to our questions and solutions to our problems. Yeah, just taking a step in the dark, it sounds like we get that advice quite a bit. Incredible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. All right, what's next? I mean, you're you're talking about uh, all these franchises opening. Um, is that that really what your focus is right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of our biggest focuses is getting into our new facility um, and then ramping up production there. How soon will that happen? That should happen. We should be there no later than this October. So quick. The timing was perfect. It really was incredible. So we'll get in there quick. We have a lot of big um, pieces of kitchen equipment coming for that warehouse to ramp up the equipment, buying more trucks and everything. But uh, like I said, we'll have six stores open here within a couple of weeks. Um, we're hoping by the end of the year, we'd like to have between 20 and 25 open at least. And then we want to get to the point where our production, our build out process, everything is streamlined enough to where next year uh, in 2023, we can open anywhere from seven to 10 stores a month is what we would like to ramp up to. 
mainly are you focused in the Western United States right now, or is it mainly I-15 corridor? What What's your focus right now? So far, uh, the majority of stores are the I-15 corridor. Um, we haven't gone further east than about Indiana, um, but we have quite a few throughout the Intermountain West, quite a few in Texas, the Midwest, um, uh, but we haven't gone further east than that. We definitely will. We have a lot of interest, but uh, we're, we're definitely going to try and build out as many stores as we can within um, the Utah facility as possible, but we're already looking at facilities in Tennessee, Texas, Florida that can you know facilitate the rest of the country. So um, right now we're worried about the current stores we're working on. Next year, even more stores and a uh, couple more warehouses. So cool. Well, I guess one last thing we want to touch on, Wade, while we have you here is, um, and I've heard quite a bit of this, but maybe you could shed more light on the mission of Dirty Dogs. I know it's it's, it's not so much, I mean, it's about cookies and franchising, but there's more than that. You want to touch on that? Absolutely. In fact, that was one of Bennett's biggest motivating factors of purchasing Dirty Dough. He's really, really passionate. I am as well. Um, but especially him, it's it's kind of one of his, uh, one of his babies, one of his projects is um, the nonprofit that we want to do, um, which is essentially, it's centered around mental health. And it's centered around the positive message of it's what's on the inside that counts. Just a quick origin of the of where that's coming from is he has a couple of daughters and a, a new baby boy. And he, he listened to a podcast, which basically talked about how ever since social media has come out, uh, self-harm and suicide rates in teens and uh, children have basically doubled. And so he kind of looked at his kids and said, how do I protect them? How do I give them the tools necessary to deal with those feelings as they come and uh, felt a little bit lost. So what we're trying to do is, raise awareness to that. Obviously, we want to do really cool programs with schools where we basically donate money to build out wellness rooms where kids can go and get help for dealing with issues like anxiety and depression and feeling like they're not enough. But more than anything, we feel like we have a unique opportunity with our cookies because they have the fillings and the multi-cookie dough layers to point out a really positive message everyone can agree on, which is it's what's on the inside that counts. And so it's great for us because it works on two levels. It points out what's unique about our cookies, but then it shares the positive message as well. And we want to go out and make a, a positive impact in the world. We obviously want to share cookies and we feel like that'll brighten anyone's day, a big delicious cookie. But um, to be reminded that it is what's on the inside that counts and you don't have to have a perfect life. And yes, the a good majority of stuff on social media is not necessarily real life. Um, that it's just a, a positive light in the world, especially right now where so much of it is just focused on negativity. That's so cool. So how do the, how do the listeners get in touch with either you about franchising with Dirty Dough or also how to get involved with this uh, nonprofit? Yeah. So, um, the website will be the main, uh, the main uh, way to do that. Um, the Instagram link, TikTok, any of our social media pages will have links as well. There will be a franchising link on all of those if they want to inquire about doing a Dirty Dough franchise. They can click on there, fill out a questionnaire, and then we'll reach out to them and schedule a time to do a call. If they want to get more involved with the nonprofit, we'll have links on that as well. Um, and like I said, that's something we're ramping up more and more, but uh, um, we'll be doing a lot of marketing centered around that as well. Love it. Okay, go get a cookie. Awesome. Sounds Love great. It. Thanks, Wade, for joining us today. It's been fun to have you on the Midnight Founders podcast. Thank you so much. We'll watch for your progress me. and uh, we'll keeping up on it. Sounds great. See Thank ya. you. Bye. The Midnight Founders podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by CB Vault and Rev Road. CB Vault is the entrepreneur arm of Central Bank. 
And RevRoad is a venture services firm where companies come to grow. Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out.